Hello and welcome to Cloud Spotting. My name is Sai Iyer and I have Alex Galbraith with me. Alex, how have you been doing this week? Yeah, I'm all right, Sai. I've been uh, been busy trying to get my head around Power BI Ooh, from Power a user BI. perspective. Yeah, we talk about it a lot, what you can do with it, but I've actually had to sit down and be trying to generate reports with it and stuff like that. So wow. it's quite an interesting experience. Trying to get my head around as well, how it integrates the rest of the Office 365 suite and stuff like that. So yeah, a um, bit nerdy, bit management-y, but quite awesome. an interesting one. I think we should put a pin on it and do maybe do another a podcast episode on it. Mm, yeah, that's a good idea. What about yourself? Uh, I've been all right. Hay fever has been kicking my uh, my backside. I'm trying <laughs> to kick its backside. Uh, but yeah, it's been going good. It's been going good. Uh, had a few discussions around uh, uh, Office 365 and especially around AD integration, which is starting to be mm. a nightmare uh, for more customers. But yeah, it seems to be going good. So we've got um, a special episode this week, uh, or the, the, the subject for this week is going to be all about something called the AWS Well-Architected Framework. And we thought we'd bring in a couple of specialists, a couple of experts to come and talk about it. Because uh, when I hear about WAF, I'm thinking like, you know, web application firewalls. So I think uh, for, the, <laughs> for those of us who are as unintelligent as me on that front, it might be worthwhile introducing, I guess. So um, start off with Danny. Danny, do you want to introduce yourself? Hi, yeah. So um, I'm uh, I'm a two-year racker. Uh, I've been with uh, with a variety of different companies before I joined Rackspace. So I, I've, I've, I've probably spent... <sighs> Uh, probably since the public accessibility of AWS, working with AWS on a variety of different technologies. Um, so I've been involved in deploying, designing, managing, uh, ongoing development of a variety of different solutions that run on AWS. And it got to the point where I was actually uh, wanting to evangelize a little bit and work for uh, a partner. And this is why I joined Rackspace. Excellent. Thank you, Danny. Um, it sounds like you've got all the scar tissue on the AWS side. Yeah, unfortunately, <laughs> it's uh, uh, yeah. I've got several T-shirts in the closet, shall we say? <laughs> and uh, Tom Ellis is our other guest. Tom, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. You've already said my name, so I won't say that again. But uh, Tom Ellis, <laughs> there you go. I'm an AWS specialist architect, so I work uh, solely with customers who are deploying and using AWS, and try and help them leverage the best of that technology portfolio. Um, I've worked with a number of companies over over the years in professional services. Oh, right. So working on site, hands-on keyboards, uh, getting getting to know all the, the the scars and problems they're facing when both just using technology in general, especially from a Linux background where I'm from, and then to cloud as well. So I worked for a cloud startup prior to starting at Rackspace, where we we're actually deploying private clouds that were mimicking AWS. So oh, cool. deploying the AWS APIs and playing around with those and getting apps to use them. And then you decide you want to play with the real thing. Yeah, uh, and I also took a, a round trip around OpenStack as well and, and uh, specialized in that for some time. Awesome. So so I'm, I alluded to earlier, you know, this, this uh, well-architected framework thing. I guess the question is, for those people who haven't heard of it, what actually is the well-architected framework and why, why would you use it? So um, it's... For simplicity's uh, sake, it's, it's just a set of best practice guidelines. Um, and the well-architected framework, although it's um, designed and developed by AWS, it's, a, it's actually something you could apply to a number of different public clouds, private workloads. Uh, it's, it's a pretty good and open framework. Um, th there are a number of different pillars uh, within the uh, well-architected framework, and these pillars guide you on how you, you can design it from a security perspective, reliability, performance, excellence, uh, cost op optimization, and, and also operational uh, operationally as well. 
Oh, cool. Okay. So, I mean, just to dig into that, why would you, so it's a set of best practices, but why would you use it and how would you use it? How would you apply it? Yeah, you, you just take the, the framework that's given to you by AWS and try and look at each of those pillars through your application to are you doing things correctly and following the best practices from a design point of view mm-hmm. and try and see where you can improve or, or where maybe where you're doing really well already. If I look at why it even exists, it's it's probably because of proliferation of cloud services. You think all the cloud providers, they used to just provide compute, storage, networking, but mm-hmm. it's gone far beyond that now with over hundreds of services in each of those cloud providers. Yep. And if you think about it, it's up to the builders of the applications and users of those platforms to, to use them all correctly and know how to use them. And that best practice is continually evolving. It's quite hard to keep up with it, even as an architect myself. Yeah, I can imagine. Especially with, uh, I mean, if we look at the old days, you said, you know, we just used to have compute network storage. You could effectively apply fairly traditional models to the way that you architected things on our, and still, uh, to some extent, can do the same thing today on IaaS. But once you start to bring in those additional kind of paths and other services, then it starts to get a hell of a lot more complex, doesn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, and I mean, it's a good idea to to have the framework. And it's not just for architects, I take it. It's, it's for oh, yeah. managers, it's for developers. Anyone can sort of use that framework and get a better understanding of how to apply it in, in their architecture. And I think you've hit the nail on the head there. Um, the framework isn't for anybody specifically. It's for the, the entire organization. Um, and it's it's focused around not just how you architect something, but how you operate uh, the environments in the cloud as well. Uh, when, when it was first launched, there was only four pillars. And there was um, a slight rumbling in the community that it was focused more towards architecture. Recently, they they added the operational excellence uh, pillar Mm -hmm. uh, to the framework, and that has really opened up the whole knowledge sharing across an entire team. It's very similar to how a DevOps model should work, where you've got a number of different... Uh, elements to an uh, to a group of people. So you've got developers, you've got operations, you've got security ops. All those kind of um, roles and responsibilities form a DevOps team, a DevOps portfolio. It's the same with the well-architected framework. You can't do it in isolation. You have to ha- have inclusion uh, right. around everybody who's responsible for operating on that platform. Perfect. So it's a team-based routine and not just target at a specific people. Definitely, yeah. you, you mentioned operational excellence. It's, it's a really good point. I think we should go into a bit more deeper. So from, from you guys, from your point of view, we talked about five pillars. Can you give us some brief introduction into the pillars and maybe go in deeper, talk some more about them? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about the, the uh, operational excellence because it's, it's, it's kind of something which is quite close to my heart with, with running the platforms previously um, or running solutions on the platform. The big thing about the cloud is they talk about how you can leverage in terms of speed of deployment, speed of uh, of, of launching new applications, of, of management, and also the, 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 the way you can scale outwards. Um, none of that is achievable if you don't automate. And one of the key things around operational excellence is the automation of, of activities and tasks. And the, 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 the cornerstone of that is operating your infrastructure in a, in a codified way. Mm-hmm. So this is leveraging tools such as cloud formation to describe and define what your environment is. Okay. Uh, some people might struggle with the quite steep uh, learning curve with cloud formation, especially around the, the fact that it originally uses JSON. Um, Just do as it. As its though. descriptor. So... There are other tools around there which can can simplify that. Uh, you can leverage Terraform with its own descriptors and its own way of manipulating AWS services and other public cloud services. But ultimately, 
if you can codify your environment, it's easy to replicate. You can manage change effectively. You can review changes automatically. There's, there's no change board every week where you go through every single one and it slows down the deployment of things you can you can push it you can push a cloud formation template through jenkins and run a, a set of unit tests to check dependencies to check whether you've actually the syntax is correct whether it's going to destroy your environment through a set of rules or, or anything like that mm-hmm. so the automation of change is absolutely paramount and it reduces admin overhead and it reduces the cost to businesses because you don't have to employ 12 or 13 sysadmins to do to do the work when two or three can get away with it obviously that's a bit of a no it's it's chicken and egg there is yeah it's <laughs> it's good for for certain people and bad for others but True. it just frees people up to do more interesting things rather than deploying a piece of code or spinning up another server somewhere and the, bu- the buzzword bingo there is obviously infrastructure as code isn't it that's what when people are talking about infrastructure as code that's really what's underpinning all of these kind of initiatives within organizations when they really want to yeah um, along with other things like well actually where do you take those templates and where do you store them and how are you deploying them and so forth yeah I think a lot of focus is sometimes wrongly drawn to the tools rather than the processes. Mm-hmm. So people think, you know, I'm, I'm adopting Terraform. You know, I've got my panacea here. I'm, I'm IAC now. Yes. <laughs> so I, I would just say use any tools. Use the ones that work. Just start doing it cause, and start making those small incremental changes, integrating it into your CI process. Even if at the beginning you just check it into Git and that's mm-hmm. it. You know, that's, that's a good start. <laughs> Oh, we'll come to that later as well. Check into Git. Oh, we come back. Yeah, yeah. Hold, that, hold that thought. Hold that thought. Uh, but I think Tom, you made a really good point. It, it is. It is down to processes rather than just tools. Because we we've heard a lot of customers come back and say, "Hey, we're making it uh, optimal. We're making it excellent by just going to Kubernetes." Well, I don't think that's the solution. That's not the end all to everything. You know, that, as you said, that's a tool. It's mm-hmm. containerizing as a tool, but you still need to. F- go through the the framework apply the right processes and get it through the right channels yeah definitely i'm um, doing it for the right reason yeah so absolutely. you know why are you doing this it's got to be some form of business value at the end of the day otherwise you're doing tools for the sake of tools not for the sake of actually a, yeah it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's just like a seesaw isn't it so, sometimes you actually want people to get excited because there's some cool tools out there to use <laughs> same time you don't want them to just com- completely forget the vision of why they're using that tool in the first place and containerizing everything even though what was the objective again? I, yeah. and, and, and that's an actually it's a, it's a good point we're going down there because there is a, another um, design principle within the well-architected framework around mechanical sympathy, okay. and and that's basically using the right tools for the right purpose. Now I've been involved in a few conversations uh, with a variety of different uh, thought leaders in in, in the. Uh, in our industry and, and blockchain seems, seems to be a, a big thing at the moment <laughs> blockchain everything if you mean if, if, yeah if you search google for memes you'll see a, 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 a number of them but <laughs> ultimately when you start looking at using blockchain as a, a highly available database or as a log aggregation tool set you'll you you're massively going away from one of the well-architected principles here around performance excellence um you're abusing it. You're abusing it, yeah, exactly. You're twisting yeah. it into something it wasn't yeah. necessarily designed yeah. for like in the first place. Kubernetes, it's it's a great thing, 
and it solves quite a few uh, few issues for a lot of companies. But ultimately, containerization is not Kubernetes. Mm-hmm. Containerization is actually getting your applications to a, a microservice type capability where you're running Absolutely. one or two processes in a container. Dropping an entire Red Hat, CentOS, Ubuntu VM inside a container, it's not really containerization, <laughs> it's just inception. Well, you can run Oracle DB in a container now. <laughs> yeah. one, I nearly Why? fell off my chair when I heard that one. Why would you do that? <laughs> yeah. Well, you can understand that from a, from a developer's perspective, the ability to package, and I kind of get that to an extent, but it's kind of, again, it goes back to that point about abusing the yeah. abusing the platform for something it wasn't really designed to do. And packaging and shipping code has been talked about since the end of time. You know, RPM was the same problem, trying to get developers to adopt RPM <laughs> format in, in, in Red Hat. In Red Hat, yeah. Uh, before that, it was a zip file. You know, mm-hmm. we, we can go on and on with that one, I think. Yep. Oh, God, yeah, absolutely. It's not good I'm going back that. to getting my tapes out. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, so we've talked about operational excellence, um, and then another sorry, one. Efi- efficiency. I keep saying excellence. It's actually efficiency. Oh, sorry. Uh, uh, performance efficiency and operational excellence. Right. Um, so, so one of the other ones that we talk about a lot on the show is security. Absolutely. And I know that's you know it's it's often in some environments it's the uh, it's the thing that comes at the end, not the thing that comes at the start. But I think um, the well-architected framework kind of takes that almost on its head, doesn't it? <laughs> Got to get uh, Werner Vogel's quote in there. Uh, if we're talking about AWS, and uh-huh. he says security is uh, job number one. So yep. if you see a lot of fear, uncertainty, and doubt about moving to the cloud in general and security being front of mind, it's always front of mind on any cloud platform, I think, just yep. because of that. And if you look at all the things that you can do in, in all of the clouds, I should keep that fairly generic, in all the <laughs> clouds, there is many, many security features, much more than you could ever think of that you would have done in your own physical data center. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, AWS taking care of security of the cloud, and you taking care of security in the cloud, there's that nice layer of uh, separation on your responsibilities. So you can focus on you know, enabling traceability, like enabling all the logging you can do within your AWS account from the API logs to the network flow logs to the OS logs to <laughs> aggregate all of the logs, log all the things. Am I allowed to get a plug-in? On this, oh yes, yeah. Course. So, um, talking about security, we uh, I've written uh, a blog article which might be able to help on that. It's called the the Onion Principle. So, if you check out the blogs on uh, blog.rackspace.com, you'll be able to find a little bit more detail on what Tom's just talked about in terms of layers of security and how you can defend against bad actors in the cloud. So, uh, that's my plug for today. Let's, let's put the link in the, in the notes. Yeah, we'll put the link in the show notes. Show notes, sorry. Along with uh, it has to be a, an, an image from Shrek, surely. Absolutely. Because security has layers, just like donkeys have layers. Um, I don't know what films you've been watching. (laughs) Cool. Um, So just touching on a couple of the other ones, just to give a bit more of a high-level introduction around them as well. So um, reliability was one of the other key pillars that you mentioned earlier on. Um, Can you just tell us a little bit more about what, what kind of things you're looking for on that side of things? Some of the design principles for it um, on that pillar include um, automating recovery from failure. So if you think about um, launching a server in the cloud or an instance, you could just launch it and leave it running. Great. But most of the cloud providers don't guarantee availability of that single instance. You need to do something. You need to wrap it in an auto-scaling group, apply an EC2 auto-recovery policy for it, perhaps for single AZ failure recovery. Mm-hmm. Do something and test it you know, to make sure that you're not just running a single point of failure. Of course, typical scenario is using multiple Amazon availability zones. So yeah. using two discrete availability zones and using an auto-scaling group that at least 
recovers from a failure. So yeah. a minimum of two instances, for example, for a website to keep that up and running, you stick a load balancer in front of that. If one of those uh, data centers or availability zones has an issue, you're still good. You've got something up and running and the scaling policy is going to kick in and launch another one for you. So it feels a bit like um, where we came from in the old world and a lot of a lot of organizations are still trying to almost follow that model. They're taking their older applications and trying to drop them into cloud. It almost feels like the whole reliability piece has been driven by the number of customers that have maybe gone into AWS and said, oh, I'm going to do it the same way I always used to, and then expecting the same outcomes when you're working on a platform that you must assume you know, you could have downtime on any element at any point. Yeah. You need to re-architect and refactor that. It's, it's a good point because when I've spoken with customers who are doing those cloud transformations and migrations, a lot of them are coming from VMware. Right. And there has been a big um, re reliance on VMware's capability of moving VMs across hypervisors. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, that's been abstracted away when you're in the cloud and you don't have visibility of underlying hypervisors, and that might be going on all the time. Yeah. But there's nothing to stop human error coming into play here and somebody accidentally uh, doing something to it, an EC2 instance, which is part of a load balance pair or just a singleton. And this is what, uh, going back to Tom's uh, uh, mention about multi-AZs. I've not seen. I've I've seen an AZ failure once in my time on AWS. Not not to say that it hasn't happened, mm -hmm. uh, but I just haven't seen many. But most failures I see are human failures mm -hmm. in the process. Yeah. Um, and this is why, or, or performance related ones where you've got too much traffic for one instance to cope with it, and they, you don't look at horizontal scaling. Putting a lot more responsibility on the developers there as well, isn't it? Because to your point, you know, on a, a traditional VMware platform, the assumption by the developer is that the infrastructure is highly available. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of turning that mindset upside down and saying, well, always assume that the infrastructure may not be highly available and let's design the application to respond to that. Design for failure. Yeah. Yep. And, uh, you know, if you just look at that reliability pillar in general, a lot of it... Is, is is considering those that data center or that availability zone may fail or that service may fail. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of, of the people that you see moving to AWS as well, they're considering a first stage migration where they're doing a lift and shift. You know, they, then there needs to be some consideration to the fact that these services may not be exactly the same as they were in your traditional data center. So, design for some failure. Do a lift, shift, and tinker. I'd prefer that terminology. <laughs> yeah. So tinker a little, a little bit, even if you've got a monolithic application. Can you put something around it just so that it will recover from a simple failure of a server? Mm. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. The the biggest, uh, the quickest win we see when uh, when we do those kind of lift and shift and tinker type migrations is just dropping in RDS, for example, instead of uh, a, a database on an EC2 instance. So that's a relational database server. So it's a managed yep. database server. It totally managed, including the absolute the, the failover uh, of services if something fails and the high availability. That's one of the the more complicated tasks most DBAs have to deal with is is the clustering or the the mirroring of, of, yes. of the database. Availability for a database. For yeah. sure. uh, especially and across data centers. Exactly, and Amazon deal with that for you. Um, Including all the patching. Exactly. <laughs> Forget to never never have to patch again. It's all good. <laughs> and some of our latest services based around Aurora, so Aurora for MySQL and for Postgres, you get to the point now where you, you, you're getting serverless databases mm -hmm. that, are on, that are on the very near horizon, so mm -hmm. you don't even have to worry about that. Mm -hmm. it, interestingly, some of, the, some of the things that you're referring to here, though, um, don't necessarily apply just to AWS. So an example of what you said there earlier, Tom, you were talking about um, the, the way that the developers are actually designing the applications. Well, actually, there's nothing to say that you shouldn't be doing the exact same thing on any other platform. Could be another cloud platform, it could be designing it on VMware, because you can't guarantee a host not going to go in. You want your application to react. 
Exactly. A lot of these the things in the well architected framework could apply to any platform, even if it was just still in your physical data center that you've got. Mm-hmm. It's just good practices. And I think as thinking has evolved over the number of years of application development, a lot of these things have become sort of knowledge that people have kept in their heads. Mm-hmm. This framework helps you solidify it in a document. It makes you think of things you haven't th- th- thought of before. So how do you actually apply the framework? So you have a, the, the, there's documentation from Amazon. How does that yep, work? Yep, there's a, a white paper uh, which goes over the, uh, uh, the the whole framework at a high level. Mm-hmm. And then each individual pillar has its own separate white papers, uh, which which delves a lot, uh, delves a lot deeper into what specifically you have to cover and and basically it's a set of questions Mm -hmm. so the framework itself it's a set of questions that you ask yourself when uh when you're developing or designing a solution or even operating a solution and those questions will highlight specific or the answers will highlight specific issues that you may have or may not have Mm -hmm. uh, and then you can go away and rectify them and the skills in the interpretation, I guess, at the end of it, and exactly, understanding yeah. what you really need to achieve out of it. Yeah, I've, I've seen it taken quite well, though. And like, you, it's not a yes or no, I'm doing things correctly list. It's, you know, you shouldn't worry if you're not doing things right on all of those. No one's going to tick all the boxes unless you've got the very new age cloudy application. I think what it's good to do is draw your mind to the areas that you need to focus on. You may mark something as needs improvement. Maybe that's not the thing you address straight away in the next development sprint. You work on all the critical items that you've got. Yeah. So when you work through the questions, you've also you've got the ability to grade each one. So as Tom alluded to, you can focus on different areas, and and, and basically it's critical issues, needs improvements, and then the well-architected uh, bits, and it will be down to what your actual business drivers are. You know, if something cannot be made highly available, don't beat yourself up about it. Mm-hmm. There may be licensing issues. It may even be that you actually need to put it in a placement group because you need performance over availability. You know, mm-hmm. in, in uh, big data uh, processing or something like that. So, take every single question with a pinch of salt and try and align it to what is the the business driver and the best value you're going to get from from the framework. Mm-hmm. That's so a good. That's a really good point there, Danny. Because if you look at it, if you look at the different pillars making something so so changing to meet a pillar if it breaks another pillar you want to think about it yeah exactly mm-hmm. cost optimization is exactly. a good one yeah you might you might want to make it highly reliable um, and very performant but it blows your, your costs out the window. So it's a balancing act as well. Absolutely. Just turn it all off. It saves loads of money. Oh, yeah. <laughs> could do that. Well, <laughs> you, you, you could. You, you, you say it jovially, but uh, there's lots of environments where you don't need them in the evening or you don't need them at weekends. Yep. Development True. environments. So Absolutely. There's even a solution from AWS there. They built a solution that's a scheduler that will shut down certain instances out of hours. Perhaps you've got dev and test and other environments that you, your developers are in the office at you know, 8 a.m. till 6 p.m. <laughs> or something like that. You shut them down, you save, you know, Forty percent of the cost. Yeah, for sure. So you're gonna you're gonna smash your cost optimization pillar, and you're also gonna smash your operational excellence. Because mm-hmm. to be able to shut all those environments down, you 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 would have had to have automated a lot of that. True. So fantastic. No, that sounds really good. And I think um, we'll we'll obviously put the the link to the the white paper itself. We'll we'll show the link. Uh, but we also put a couple of links in the in the show notes. Uh, two links that I found out which are really really handy. Uh, they kind of mind map the the way uh, the process works, and it's a it's a good visual 
tool to see how the, the process works and sort of how to pick a set of things. Uh, but yeah, we'll put the link along with your uh, white paper, Danny, uh, the blog, Danny. So Mind maps cool. are great. Yeah. Yeah. Mind mm. maps are fantastic. I'm going to say, I, I, I can't hold my hand up to the white paper. I think there's some more, much more clever people at AWS who wrote that. <laughs> <laughs> the, on that mind map front, though, so I think one of those links is the AWS one that's been mapped out. But then there's another one, which is for Azure as well, which is quite interesting when we're comparing the two the level of detail that they go into and kind of the you know there's still similar structures and forms and similar concepts but they've actually done them in slightly different ways depending on which absolutely and and not to let google out there is a a, a link in google docs that talks about architecture so if you have a, a, a solution in mind, a, a, an application in mind. They've got sort of architecture designs that kind of best fit that solution. So it's mm-hmm. it's not exactly the WAF that AWS has created, but it, it sort of gives you an idea of how to architect for it. And taking those principles as well from the AWS WAF, absolutely nothing to stop you applying them to any other. Platform. It'd be interesting to apply the uh, the Azure ones to the AWS design actually. See, go through an exercise and see what happens there. Yeah, but see what I, comes back. I, I think, as we we're saying, you know, they, we'll find that they apply to all of them. Mm-hmm. They should sure. do. They should do. It's a good point, actually. That's uh, we talk about AWS a lot and and sort of the architecture framework. But yeah, technically the questions really you could pick it, pick up the questions and do it for anything. You know, you talk about performance efficiency, you talk about operational excellence. Why not apply it against uh, a developer principle? So mm-hmm. if you're if you're writing code. Ask the questions. Think about the questions as you're writing the code. So yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's not just infrastructure. Yeah. Exactly. And it could be for any cloud, any tech solution, probably anything. Mm-hmm. I'm going to try and apply it to bring my kids up. <laughs> yeah, I think you should do that. Give it a shot. See how it works. Yeah. Ask them the question. Cost optimization. Yeah. Yeah. You will not have that pocket money. Operational excellence. The dishes were not done sufficiently well. Um, so uh, one thing we alluded to earlier, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to roll on to this week's news or this month's news. Um, there's one that jumped out at us um, and we alluded to it earlier around <laughs> Git. Yes. So um, we've heard about this big acquisition this week of GitHub by Microsoft for seven and a half billion stock. in stock. Yes. Wow. Yeah. So what, what, what are the thoughts on the ground from that one? Well, uh, I've never seen a denial of service happen on another uh, <laughs> Git provider just by somebody being purchased. That was, that was quite interesting. <laughs> so there's, there's been a, a bit of a mass migration to GitLab um, recently as well. So they were massively impacted by... Uh, by the initial announcement, as as a number of, of people migrated their repos across, mm-hmm. thankfully GitLab have got a very scale, scalable environment, following well architected principles, <laughs> might I say. So so they are coping now. Um, but yeah, interesting. Very I interesting. think the community reaction was a little bit uh, crazy to start with. It's settled down now. Um, you know, Microsoft have got a you know a positive uh, background in helping developers. Mm-hmm. If you think back to the developers, 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 yeah, you sure. know, <laughs> all the way back then, they are they are a very different organisation to they were a number of years ago. Absolutely. With the guards open source, changed it just unrecognisably. So mm. some of the things that they're getting into these days, they just wouldn't have ever expected in the old Microsoft. Yeah, and there is a big big push for uh, for open source within Microsoft, and they Absolutely. were the biggest contributors. To, to GitHub in terms of check-ins, pushes, PRs, all that kind of stuff. So There's, There was an interesting uh, blog post by the who is the new CEO or will be the new CEO of GitHub as well, um, Nat Fredman. He's got a, a very good background in open source, um, number of different organizations he worked for. It was mm-hmm. quite a thought leader in open source anyway in general and I think they're going to take the, you know, he's going to take the helms of GitHub and push it in the right direction. I don't think there's going to be 
from what I can see, any mergers into the main Microsoft products is going to be a standalone thing, much like, um, if, I guess, if you look at recent <laughs> acquisitions like LinkedIn and things like that, that's still pretty much standing on its yeah, own. Yeah, they are. Yeah, that, rather than being all fully integrated necessarily. Funny thing, though, the, you mentioned LinkedIn. Uh, I was recently talking to someone at Microsoft about uh, their Dynamics products oh, yeah. and moving that into the cloud. And it's really nice link that talks about Dynamics 365 now available in the cloud. And there were two things that sort of stood out. Essentially, it's for sales and for talent. And that kind of oh, rung the bell. It says that's exactly kind of what LinkedIn does. Yeah, and this this is Salesforce thing here as well. You know, it starts to be a, a, a viable competitor to, to in that marketplace. Mm. Oh, that's the other thing with the purchase of GitHub, I guess, is, you know, with... With tech companies getting bigger and bigger and lots of different acquisitions, so they've got multiple product lines which actually kind of do the same thing as well. Mm-hmm. Even compete with each other. Yeah. Yeah, 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 for it sure. It'll be interesting to see what they do with it. Well, we only have to look at some of the big infrastructure players who have made very large, you know, gone private and acquisitions and so forth in the last couple of years. And, uh, yeah, even within their product lines, it's uh, it's quite... It can be a bewildering externally, potentially, to make decisions around that. But once you start to work with those organizations internally, I think you get a bit more clear ideas to where they're going. Definitely. Mm. Cool. So I think uh, I think that's pretty much, I think we had a good discussion on, on uh, well architected Framework. And I, guys, if you need more information, check out the upcoming webinar. Um, Tom's running the oh, webinar. Oh, yes. I shouldn't, oh, it would be, it'd be a mistake plug. if I didn't plug the <laughs> webinar. I'm running a, a webinar with AWS, so Dan White at AWS and myself on the 27th of June. Uh, it's a public webinar. Everyone's welcome to attend. Uh, we should be diving a bit deeper into the Well Architecture Framework. Awesome. Absolutely. And also, uh, we've got two episodes recorded. We should be able to get them out, so you'll have two episodes in June. Bonus. Uh, so just, yeah, watch <laughs> Bonus out for that one. one. Bonus, indeed. Yeah. Uh, cool. Sounds good. So, um, Give us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you listen to, uh, where you enjoy the podcast. Um, also follow us on Twitter. We uh, have a Twitter code. I think it's at, at Spotting Clouds. Is it? Awesome. Fantastic. Yeah. So give give us a show. Uh, tweet us if you wanna if you would like to listen to something that that we talk about and let us know if you if you're if you're curious about what topics we cover. Yeah, drop us a tweet or a message, and we're happy to reply. Yeah. Can you can you have biscuits next time? <laughs> Absolutely, speaker's <Danny>. request. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Thank you, guys. Cheers. Thanks. Thanks.